Today I wanted to dedicate the podcast, December 5th, 2017, to my uncle who passed away recently. Um, You know, Uncle Carl, I I believe that you're in a better place. Um, You know, my uncle was was, um, a very cool guy, very cool guy, very dignified guy. Um, You know, worked for the same employer for... (laughs) <laughs> worked for the same employer for almost 50 years and um you know he uh gave his his family a good life very very good life everything that they could ever ask for uh he made it happen he made it happen for them and um he was a classy guy he wore class he drove class <laughs> he um you know he he was just an all-around good guy and uh he called himself the scholar and incidentally that's that's kind of how he was referred to uh at his his going home uh at his funeral and so you know i just uh, wanted to dedicate today to him and invite you all to listen in as we discuss uh, you know a few a few topics and one of the things that we're going to start off talking about today is death and dying for men um you know, my uncle struggled with cancer for a number of years. And I remember, I remember, um, when I was living, uh, um, in another state, uh, at the time I drove in to see some family members and, um, my dad told me, he said, Hey man, your uncle is in the hospital. Why don't you go see him before you uh, settle in? I said, okay, great. Well, I'll head on over. And this was before he had received the uh, diagnosis of cancer. We sat there uh, talking to my uncle for probably three or four hours that day and enjoyed every moment of it. And in fact, I also had a chance to meet one of his co-workers, another guy who worked with him at Anheuser-Busch for a number of years and had previously retired. And uh, that friend of his told me that he had been stricken with cancer twice. And he talked about what it was like going through that. And, um, you know, uh, as soon as he heard that my uncle was sick, he didn't know what he had. But he's like, hey, I'm going to go, you know, visit my buddy. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. And he said, yeah, you know, we pretty much started working for the company as young men. And we have known each other, you know, uh, almost all of our lives. And so we're like brothers. And I thought that's amazing that. My uncle had someone that he worked with who he was able to cultivate that type of friendship with, who was able to spend time with him at the hospital. Um, and uh, both men shared a lot of interesting things with me during that visit. So later on, I learned that my uncle was diagnosed with cancer. And for a number of years, he fought and he fought well. And he continued to live with dignity. He still wore his 
fancy Jose Banks suits and his Brooks Brothers suits and his Carl Kanai track suits and Kangol's and all of that. And he kept his truck nice and clean and he smelled like the finest colognes and stuff, you know. I mean, a really classy guy, even through his illness. And um, it is that at, at that point right there where, you know, I want to call your attention to how we process illness and death how we process illness and death because you know the the day after thanksgiving i was given the call that he had passed away i knew that he was in a hospital uh you know a couple of days prior and my father had not really told me how bad the situation was and so i thought as my father told me that he was, you know, getting a few tests done and they were just going to keep him there for a little bit to do some observation. And he would probably be on his way home. And I would say about 30 hours or so later, I got the phone call that he passed away. And I was really, really shocked by it. Hadn't anticipated that at all. And, you know, as things go right, we really never truly anticipate death or can prepare for it. You know, death is one of the great uncertainties in life. Some of us will die in ways out of our control and most of us will be unaware, you know, of the moment that of death itself. Um, and still, you know, death and dying can be approached uh, in, in a healthy way. And um, it's, it's that thing that I want to talk about at the moment. You know, my dad um, was a caregiver for my grandfather as he uh, made his transition from this life. And he was a person who struggled, you know, fought uh, cancer, prostate cancer, diabetes, you know, um, <clears throat> And my dad, in addition to my uncle's wife, my dad was also uh, an integral part of giving care to him. And so my dad watched as this illness began to overtake my uncle's body. And when I called my father, I said, Dad, I was just on the phone with you. And I could hear Uncle Carl in the background. What happened? And, what did, and he told me, he said, no, man, just listen. He said, you know, your uncle told me and his wife, he asked us both, hey, listen, or he said, this is this is the end. It, it's, it's happening now. I know that death is coming and I would prefer uh, that we keep it controlled, that we keep it dignified and that we do not, um, you know, turn it into some type of a fiasco we know what this is you know my uncle alluded to uh, the fact that he was tired of his wife having to take care of him the way that the way that she did and um, you know interestingly enough I told the story of meeting my uncle's friend uh, so several years back at the hospital and that friend he had had cancer twice well believe it or not he was told that he had cancer for a third time and that friend decided 
to end his own life. He decided that he wasn't going through the struggle anymore and he wasn't going to burden his family with taking care of him in that state. And I know that that's a difficult thing for people to understand or accept. You know, I don't know what to tell you personally to deal with that at this point, you know, but I do know that until you are in that position, you know, the only thing that you probably will have are blinders and judgments. Okay. So at any rate, my uncle said, Hey man, I want to go out and I want to go out quietly. I want to go out calmly. Cool. And my dad respected that. My dad respected that. So as I said, dying can be approached in a healthy way. Seeing others die can be approached in a healthy way. And that was my dad's way of dealing with my uncle's request, with his brother's request. I don't know if I have the ability to do that within me right now, (laughs) right? But my dad did. My dad did. And that showed me something about men being there for each other and how to deal with death without the kicking and screaming that sometimes accompanies it. Okay. Um, You know, when I got the news, I would call my dad every other day or whatever and say, Hey dad, are you okay? And he said, yeah, I'm I'm okay, man. And he would reassure me, listen, this is what was going on with your uncle. He was in a lot of pain. He knew that, you know, he could not fight it anymore. And so this was the outcome and he was at peace. And when my dad told me that my uncle was at peace, you could hear my father giving an indication of him moving towards that peace, moving in the direction of his own inner peace. And that, of course, gave me a bit of peace. All right. That gave me a bit of peace. And some of you out there know what I'm talking about because you've experienced it with loved ones before. Right. You've experienced this kind of thing and you know when it's time to let them go because they are suffering. That's what we have to do. So I want to talk to you guys really quick about uh, a couple phases, a couple phases of death. Okay. Um, you know, there's a first stage of, of, uh, of death, especially if somebody is, you know, suffering from a chronic illness, uh, you know, uh, sometimes it's called a preactive phase. A person will often withdraw from social activities and spend more time alone. You know, sometimes uh, they speak of tying up loose ends and their finances, wills and trusts. And I know that several months ago, that's something that my uncle uh, began to do. You know, sometimes um, an individual desires to speak with family and friends and make amends or catch up. You know, um you know, in, in some cases, and, and it does happen, you know, confusion sets in for the individual. They're agitated more, right? They have a lot of anxiety. Um, 
some some people don't like to to do a whole lot you know if they're in hospice or hospital and you want to get them up and walk them around you may think that you are doing um a great thing by come on let's go let's go walk and and, and things and you know uh psychologically they're just in a different place than we are um i know that my uncle you know he had lost um you know some of his appetite um you know he didn't want to eat a whole lot didn't want to drink a whole lot um but uh you know my my aunt his his wife did tell me you know one day my dad went to his house and they had a a huge uh fish fry <laughs> and he enjoyed that a lot as much as he could and I thought man that was cool that was really good um you know uh they sometimes seek uh spiritual advice from their religious leaders and things and all of these things happen just in the preactive phase and then you have the active phase where a person will state that they're going to die soon um they may report that they have difficulty swallowing liquids or resist food and drink. And sometimes their, their personalities change. And it's important for us to recognize that these things are all normal because it helps the living individual deal with what's going on. You know, sometimes uh, an individual may lose the ability to, to speak or become unresponsive a little more. Um, they may not move around, like I said, as much. They may not move at all for long periods of times. And, you know, a lot of people like to talk about touch therapy. Um, there's a point at which touch therapy is good for the patient, right? But there's another point at which touch therapy becomes good for the living loved ones who are seeing their loved one begin to transition from this life. All right. So those are some of the, 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 the things that happen in the active phases of death. And I just mentioned those things because as I was talking to my father, many of them had been present over a longer period of time than what many of my family realize or many of, of, of my family realize or even I realized. And then I was like going back in my mind and I'm like, wait a minute. There, there was the sign. There was yet another sign. There was yet another sign. And because my uncle went through these things and he went through these things on his own time, in his own way, it contributed to his own peace. And I think that if we're able to approach these things while living, it won't take away the pain of losing someone. It won't take away the pain of seeing someone suffer in a sense, no. However, it will help us be able to approach what's happening and understand it a little more, okay? And, you know, it's the kickoff of, of a transition and a grieving process. All of those things are very, very important. All of those things are important. When I come back, I'll tell you something else that I saw happen that was really sweet and endearing from a man. 
So, you know, now we're at the at the funeral and um you know, I really wanted to make sure that my father was able to say goodbye to the earthly body of his brother. And I know that it was difficult for my dad. I know that. But I wanted to really encourage him to go view his brother's physical remains. And uh, I am a personally, you know, I, I, I believe that the dead can hear us. They may not be able to respond to us, but I believe that they can hear us. And so I encouraged my father to, to talk to me. And I and the pastor was able to help my father get up there to see his brother. And um, in the process of talking to his brother, my father took his hand and, and stroked his head in a gentle way. In a way that I <laughs> I can't say I've ever seen my father ever be as gentle as he was at that moment. And it sent a chill through my 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 spine and it caused tears to come out of my own eyes. You know, I was like, wow, man, my dad and they they were tight. They were tight. And while I was with my father uh, before and after the funeral, my father was intimating to me just how important it was to have solid men in our lives who could deal with us as we went through so many of life's trials. And my father shared with me that there were many people in his life who haven't necessarily always been around for those things including death and dying. So I just wanted to, you know, throw a little bit out there for men on death and dying and what that experience was about. I won't spend too much more time on that. Give you guys some time to deal with that on your own. The other thing that, um, you know, I wanted to talk about and I won't wait for a break to do it. I'll, I'll begin it now was that I had the opportunity to, to visit, um, uh, a church that uh, one of my cousins is a pastor at. And, you know, I, I've got some concerns and I know I'm not alone when I when I mention these concerns, but I've got some concerns, particularly for the religious institutions, the religious people, especially those who are black. So knowing that the majority of black Americans are Christian and then there are some who are Muslim, you know, uh, my concern is surrounding the church, the black church and the black mosque. And I see something that is a dilemma for the church and for the mosque. For the church, it is, especially for smaller churches in areas where the economy isn't the greatest. Churches, they've got women. They've got black women there. They don't have black men. They don't have black men. And it makes you wonder where they are. For mosques, for mosques, you know, primarily 
populated by blacks, you have an abundance of men and not as many women. But in those mosques, you have men who are probably hyper-masculine. And in the black church, where you have men, you have a great deal of men who are quite less than hyper-masculine. And it's something that a lot of people don't want to discuss. If they are present in the church, they seem to be um, very much, you know, um, led by women. And if they are present in the mosque, they seem to be very brutish to women. So we've got some polar opposites, but they both point to issues that men are having issues that the religious institutions are having with men. And so we'll continue after the break. So we're back and we're talking about the dilemma of men in religious centers, especially religious centers uh, uh, in um, in uh, black America. Right. Mainly churches and mosques. And that, you know, uh, there is an abundance of black men in, uh, in in mosques, hardly any women. And those uh, black men tend to uh, lean towards hyper masculinity and, and, and brutish um approaches to religion and life and in the christian churches you have if you have uh men and you do not have a lot of men uh in in many churches across america um you have men who may uh may not be formidable to say the least i won't say that they're necessarily effeminate right because that's you know uh, you, you can go down uh, into a into a, a rabbit hole with that one, uh, but needless to say, you know I think it's safe to say, however, like that the men who are present are minimal, and um, they may uh, have minimal impact in some of these uh, in some of the churches. So, what's going on with men? What's happening? I do know this. I know that. In churches across America where they're talking about leadership, where they are developing leaders, where they um, <clears throat> do a lot of self-development on leadership, men are attracted to that. If they're having um, seminars on how to open up businesses and grow your business and talk about professionalism and things of that nature, men are attracted to that. Men are not as attracted to the emotionalism of religion. A lot of men don't necessarily say it. Um, and mosques filled with black men. What's going on with that? Well, what the men are attracted to is they are attracted to a paternalism that they get from the religion. They have been ostracized by society at large in some instances, right? Some of them, if they've not been ostracized by society at large, maybe they came from, uh, you know, street backgrounds, you know, uh, 
you know, in some cases, prison backgrounds where things you had to be a little tougher, a little harder, had to have a different understanding, a different way about yourself. Right. Then the paternalism of Islam attracts them, but it doesn't necessarily show them how to interact with the softer sides of things, not just the women, but how to even address the softer side of themselves. You see. So. What's going on? I think it points to a stopgap that we have. We don't really, really know whatever religion we subscribe to, right? We don't really know how to address a complete man. Either we know how to deal with him on a leadership level. We can talk to him about how to become a boss. We can talk to him about how to lead his family, how to lead a congregation. But we don't really know how to talk to him about getting in tune with other internal aspects of himself. And it doesn't matter if we are a preacher or any man. That's something that we're struggling with. Right. There are many pastors today who have to straddle the line between preaching traditionalism and talking to people living in today's modern times. How do you do that? How do you balance that when you've got older people in the church who feed off that traditionalism and you've got younger people who are like, hey, man, I'm out here suffering and I need a dollar. Right. How do you in a mosque balance traditionalism with modern with modernity? Right. You know, you're talking about a man is the head of the household or men were created for several purposes and one is to take care of their women. And yet you can't address some of the things that keep them from being able to take care of their families. You know, I think that um, a lot of men really, really want to still be out front in their families. They still want to be the leaders. They want to make the bread. They want to be the breadwinners, right, and bring it home. And, and they want to prove that they can handle things and take care of their families. Um, I don't think that you're going to be able to get men away from that. But I also know that, and, I, and I've learned this from experience, guys, you know, the women in our lives today need us to do more than just make money and, and bring it home and, and sit on the couch and watch a movie or, you know, come home and uh, drop off some groceries and then play on our phones for the rest of the night or, or slide away into the man caves or go check on their buddies down the street. They need us to be present. They need us to be present. And um, I learned, I learned from my father what it was like to be present but absent and I learned from my father what it was like to be fully present and I think that um, we whether we're talking about black American Muslims or black American Christians 
uh, our religious centers need to be able to to get that message across to us. They've got to get that message across to us, but they've also got to help teach us how to do those things. And in some regard, they have to be able to send the message that it's okay to buck the trend. I get it that this is what granddad used to be, but you've got to be something different than what your grandfather was today. You have to be. And I'm saying that as a man, guys, we got to be able to do that. Okay. It's going to have a huge impact on our children. Uh, either way, it'll have a negative impact if we are not able to be there, have a positive impact if we're able to be there. But we've got to be willing to change and we can't be afraid uh, to hear the message from our religious leaders and our religious leaders can't be afraid to give it. Okay. And I'm speaking particularly two men and about men. All right. Uh, I think too, you know, we have to be open to looking at the totality of leadership, what it, what it means comprehensively to be a leader. Sometimes a leader is leading from the front time. Sometimes a leader is leading from the back. He's in the middle, right? You know, he's behind the scenes in other cases. We have to be able to be flexible like that. We have to be able to adapt to things. People who have had great success in their professional lives and personal lives are able to adapt to things. And I think that both the church and the mosque, if they want to grow their congregations, if they want to have people return, if they want to have people inside of those institutions with healthy relationships, everybody's got to come to the table and talk about adaptation. And they have to be able to talk about adaptation without the fear of becoming a heretic. Without the fear of being outcast by said religious people and theologies. Okay? So that's one of the things that I wanted to, to, to get out there for a lot of individuals. Because it's a huge dilemma in religious centers. It's a huge dilemma. You know, um... You have you have women, some women have had to do things on their own and, and they don't know how to take a back seat to men anymore. And you know what? I get it. And you have other men out there who they've never ever had the chance to leave before. And they're just licking their chops, waiting to be that guy. Well, we got to have a conversation about that. OK, because it's a conversation about adaptation and it's a conversation about, you know, asking ourselves some serious questions you know is everything that was old good for right now i don't know but it's something that we need to consider it is it's something we need to consider it's something that we need to have a discussion with our with our with our religious leaders about so that's all i'll say about that and uh, i'll get ready to wrap up right after the break so as i get ready to wrap up i just want to drop a quick uh quick word about the fragile state of male friendships guys i say it all the time to as many men as i can if you have bad relationships with men, you'll have bad relationships with 
women, children, everybody else in your life. Um, if you feel like you have individuals in your life who you have to um, walk on eggshells with, um, you're walking on thin ice with, if you have individuals in your life who you cannot be authentic with, then know that um, these are not really friends. Okay. And it doesn't do you any good to keep them in your pocket. You know, you have an individual in your life who you can't bear it all with for fear of judgment or them running away or something like that. Then you need to ask yourself, what do you have them in your life for? They're taking up space that you could use for something else. But also, I want you to consider that, you know, if you're an individual who can't be authentic with others if you're an individual who can't be authentic with others then um you know you you may also um have to remove yourself from their lives and that's something that a lot of people don't really think about is that say well wait how am i useless to somebody <laughs> right that's a difficult thing to approach is to say you know what am i useful to him do I, do I, do I have any benefit for him? You know, do I contribute to his life in a positive fashion? You have to ask yourself that. You can't just ask yourself, does he contribute to my life in a positive fashion? Right. The other thing that I encourage men uh, to do is this, is to, to, to develop friendships. And I especially tell younger people this, some of you old guys, you know what? You're fixed in your ways. You don't want to do anything different. You're just going to go 90 miles an hour until you run into that brick wall called death. OK, you know, but the younger people, hey, look, find somebody who can hold you accountable and who uh, you hold accountable. And that's really not that difficult to do unless you're just a slime bag of a person. OK, uh, find somebody who has ap ap applicability for your life. And somebody who you have applicability for, right? Meaning that you all are a benefit to each other, right? And, you know, associate with individuals uh, with whom you can be authentic, okay? People who you can be truthful with and those that can be truthful with you. Those are the three things. Remember them. Authenticity, applicability, and accountability, if you have individuals around you who cannot be those the, those three things with you, and if you can't be those three things with them, those aren't your friends. Those aren't your friends and you're wasting each other's time. Okay? So as we begin to look at those three traits, we'll see that there are a lot of friendships that we have that are in a fragile state. So I just wanted to give you that little bit to think about. Hopefully you guys have enjoyed something of that that I had to share with you uh, pretty soon uh, coming up in the uh, in a podcast. We're going to be talking about uh, mindfulness and how uh, how that can help men deal with uh, stress and anxiety. And uh, we will also have uh, have an interview with uh, an African-American psychologist uh, who who. Uh, deal specifically with anxiety disorders so stay tuned and um, you know we look forward to spending time with you in the near future